0: name I pray, amen. Well, um, we will be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14 today, uh, but I'd like to start this off with a question, and the topic of this sermon might sound a little bleak at first, um, but the question I'd like to ask you is, how do you respond to the fact that you will die one day? What is the response that you feel in your heart, in your mind? In 2014, a surgeon from Boston, Massachusetts, wrote a book entitled, Being Mortal. And in this book, he reflected on his years of medical practice, seeing how patients with diseases that could not be cured were often neglected. And I have a couple quotes I'd like to read from him this morning. He says in the book, speaking of his own experience, you become a doctor for what you imagine to be the satisfaction of the work, and that turns out to be the satisfaction of competence. It is a deep satisfaction, very much like the one that a carpenter experiences in restoring a fragile antique chest, or that a science teacher experiences in bringing a fifth grader to that sudden, mind-shifting recognition of what atoms are. It comes partly from being helpful to others, but it also comes from being technically skilled and able to solve difficult and intricate problems. Your competence gives you a sense of identity. For a clinician, therefore, nothing is more threatening to who you think you are than a patient with a problem you cannot solve. I am in a profession that has succeeded because of its ability to fix If your problem is fixable, we know just what to do for you. But what if it's not? The fact that we have had no adequate answers to this question is troubling and has caused callousness, inhumanity, and extraordinary suffering. He says in the last quote, Our reluctance to honestly examine the experience of aging and dying has increased the harm we inflict on people and denied them the basic comforts they most need. Lacking, oh, yeah. What he's recognizing is that many people are uncomfortable with the truth that they will die. And doctors are trained to be able to stop this process or at least slow it, but everyone ultimately comes to that final day. And so doctors get frustrated when they realize they can't help a patient and then they neglect that patient because it's a reminder that all of our efforts to try to stop this process ultimately will fail. Death will come at some day. So how do you respond to this truth? Perhaps this is the longest you've ever heard someone talk about this truth, that you will die. Many people would prefer to distract themselves from it and deny that it will happen. They live their lives joyfully, forgetting that they will die one day. They fill their lives with distractions, hoping that they can live long enough and enjoy their life long enough, but someday, that day, or someday, their life will come to an end. Other people resort to a form of nihilism, that nothing matters at all because we will die someday. that it doesn't really matter how I live. If you've read the classic novel, "The Stranger," it's a short little book. At the end of the book, the main character is reflecting on this, and he says that anything that he did in his life really didn't matter at all because he was going to die. If he had lived a good life, so what? If he had lived a bad life, so what? None of it matters. That's how some people respond to this truth. Others respond in fear. It keeps them awake all night long. They cannot sleep knowing that the next day might be their last. And then another response is anger. They see this truth, And they become angry. They say, how could this be? This is wrong. And that anger ultimately turns towards God, who has the power over death. So I'd like to pose this question again. How do we respond to our own mortality? And I think the passage that we'll be looking at today answers this question and teaches us how to act in wisdom in light of the fact that we are going to die. So again, we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and a couple verses earlier at six verse t- chapter 6, verse 10, there's a transition in the book, the end of the first, ha- or the first half of the book and the beginning of the second, and the second half of the book is very much concerned with wisdom and with teaching wisdom, with helping you see and live your life wisely, and this is how um, our passage is the first one of the second half of the book, But we need to know, what is wisdom? And people talk about wisdom a whole lot, but it can be hard to define what wisdom is. The great um, 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon defined wisdom as, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. It's the correct application of what you know. If you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then the application or the wisdom from that would be to be able to do a math equation. So that is what wisdom is, but we have to see what the knowledge is first before we can apply it wisely. So with that being said, let's read our passage, and there's two things that we need to know in this passage that we will then learn to understand. So I will read, starting at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the cackling of thorns under a pot... So is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of wisdom or of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God: who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful; in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will. Be after him. This phrase "will be after him" is at the beginning of our passage, or actually the verse before our passage, and also at the end. It's kind of the two bookends of our passage, and the two truths we need to see in this passage is first what I've been talking about—that we will all die—says in verse two—that that is the end of mankind. But then also at the end of our passage, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? We see that there is a sovereign God in all of this. So we need to understand both of these truths. We need to be able to apply them both. So first we will talk about a wise response to death. And then we will talk about turning from death, a wise response to God in light of death. How do we see the relationship between God and death? If God is all good, then how can death exist? How can pain exist? It's an often question you'll hear apologists be asked. If God is good, why did this event happen? So we'll look at those things. And the main idea that I want you guys to see from this passage is that a true understanding of death comes only through trusting the wisdom of God. We have to trust the wisdom of God first before we can properly understand the place of death in this world. So let's look at the first two verses, and the point here is that the wise person remembers death. They remember that they will die. The beginning of our passage, a good name is better than a precious ointment. That's a weird phrase, precious ointment. What does it mean? Well, ointment was something that you would put on a dead body, like a perfume to keep it from smelling, and the preciousness of that signifies its value. So this was a Very expensive perfume that you would put on a dead body. Only given to a guy who or a person who was rich. And it says that a good name is better than than the precious ointment. Really, you have two people who are dead in this: the person who was rich when they died, and the person who had a good name when they died. And it represents two very different kinds of lifestyles. The one person lived selfishly, acquiring as much wealth as they could throughout their life and then died. The other person lived selflessly and then passed away, and he left behind a good name. Now, ultimately, this may seem out of context to what we're talking about, but it denies the nihilist philosophy that because of death, nothing in this world really matters. Well, your actions actually do matter. Both of these people died. Having a good name will not keep you from death, but it is better to leave behind the good name the precious ointment. We ought to think and actually consider how we live because, as we go on to see, we will die. Death is the end of mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It's important to see here that we're not talking about our own death when it says better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. We're talking about a funeral for another person. And this house of feasting in this passage was usually considered a wedding or celebration of a birth. So given between the option, most people would prefer to go to the wedding. They would prefer to celebrate something new rather than remember what was gone. But Solomon says in this passage, it's better to go to the house of mourning. Well, why is it better to go? He says, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. We are all going this way. This is the wake-up call So when you go to the house of mourning, you remember that this is where you are going as well. Within years, decades maybe, you'll be the one who fills the coffin. That's where we are all going. Now I know that Christ could return before that day comes. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope for, that he will come. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But if Christ does not come before that day, then this is the way that we are going. So when you go to the house of mourning, you remember that this is where you are going, and it says in our passage, notice who lays it to heart. It's not everyone. It's the living. Now, our culture often tries to tell us what it means to really live, or you may have heard somebody say something along the lines, you haven't lived until you've done this thing, or you haven't lived until you've had this food or been to this place. Well, according to our passage, the person who really lives in the irony The person who really lives is the one who knows that they will die. Because they know that their life is fleeting. Now, it's interesting, if you go back to chapter 3, you'll see that God has put eternity onto the hearts of men. So we know that something is coming after death. We know that. But we also know that death will happen. That our life on this earth is fleeting. That it matters how we live, And so the wise person is the person who remembers that they will die and lives in light of that. Jonathan Edwards has the phrase when he prayed once, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. It's the prayer that you would remember that you are going to go somewhere after you die. So they remember death because you see that your life is fleeting, but also when we remember death, we get to see that this was not how it was originally meant to be. And it's a funny use here, the word mankind is really the word Adam, Adam. It takes us back to the garden. God created this world without death in it, but because Adam and Eve sinned, death was, br- was brought into the world. So when we remember death, we remember that this is not how it's supposed to be, that it wasn't originally created like this, that Death is alien to this world. It's foreign, but it's here anyways. Which leads us to the second point. Now we see death in front of us. The wise person remembers death, but the wise person also takes death seriously. And in verses 3 through 6, we really get two different images of two different responses to death. Now, if we don't read this verse contextually, It says sorrow is better than laughter. You might think that it's always better to be sorrowful. It's always better to be mourning. That Christians should be very sad people, if you don't understand this verse, within the context of talking about death. But we already know from the book of Ecclesiastes that that cannot be the case. Christians aren't called to be sorrowful all the time. Four times already, Solomon has said in this book that there is nothing better for a man than that he enjoys his life and his toil on earth. And we know from chapter 3 that there is a time to mourn and a time to weep, but there's also a time to laugh and to dance. So this can't be talking about all the time, but in the specific context, when you're thinking about death or when you're attending a funeral or you had a loved one who's passed on, which is better, sorrow or laughter, weeping or laughter? Now, the two things are compared and contrasted a lot in these four verses, you have laughter on one hand, and it's not necessarily just laughter, like someone who needs a good laugh, comic relief, and a hard time, but it's the laughter of distraction, the laughter of not taking things seriously, the laughter of preferring to do something else rather than spend time mourning the loss of someone, or thinking about your own mortality, and this is rampant, especially in my generation. Young Men and women spend hours doing things that will only distract them. Young men especially looking at funny pictures and videos on YouTube to distract them from the important things of life. And the interesting thing about this is though they spend so much time laughing, my generation is one of the most depressed and anxious generations that has ever been, especially in the United States. This laughter doesn't actually help anything. And that's what it says later on. When you distract yourself from the reality that you are going to pass away, it may seem like it will benefit you, but it won't. Read verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Now, this is an interesting image that he puts here, and it's one that I have a lot of experience with. I grew up in western Washington state, and on my property we had a lot of blackberry bushes, which were just clusters of vines um, all together. And we loved the blackberries that they would produce. But every year we had to cut these vines back because they would grow and grow and grow. And if we didn't cut them back, they would eventually take over part of our yard. So I have lots of experience cutting back these clusters of thorns. And I also have a lot of experience burning them because that's what we would do. We would burn all of this compost. And the interesting thing about a cluster of dead blackberry vines is that they have a really big size. It's really hard to get them into a compact area. You can't stack them like pieces of wood, so they look very large. But they're so dry and brittle that you can easily break them apart. And so this crackling of thorns, you imagine taking that cluster of dry blackberry vines and throwing it on a fire. You would imagine that you would have a good amount of heat. And it says under a pot here, maybe you need to boil some water. You would imagine that it would last you a while. But in reality, the vines would be gone like that. They're so quickly gone away, and it's such a loud burn because it's so dry. All that crackling. And this is the image that we get of the laughter of fools. It looks like it would be helpful, but in reality, it offers no real warmth. It offers no real benefit. That's the laughter of fools. If you imagine someone who had a large cut across part of their body... The laughter of fools would be to put a band-aid on it and then cover that part of the body and forget about it. But that is not how you treat a wound. But look at the other option. There is sorrow. And we are told that sorrow is better than laughter. But we're also given a reason why it's better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. We have two reasons why sorrow is better than laughter. The first is because it offers healing for the heart. When we mourn after someone who has passed on, it is a healing process. And that's what this phrase means. The heart is made glad. Literally, the heart is made well or good. It's a healing phrase. Through this sadness of the face, your heart begins to heal after what you have lost. So through this seriousness of taking death serious, you actually are being enveloped in a healing process. Number one, especially for those who have mourned, loved ones, but also through this sadness of faith faith, you are surrounding yourselves with wisdom, or with this sorrow. There's a reason why funerals are most often held in churches. Because churches, the good ones especially, are equipped with teaching how to handle death, how to learn from death. And so, when you come together for a funeral, especially when you're part of a body like we are, for many of us, part of this body of Christ, you surround yourself with other people who should be or are wise, who know how to handle these things. Which means if you know someone who is mourning, you can help them as a Christian. You are this wise person who can rebuke them. So there's two reasons, again, why sorrow is better than laughter because it's a healing process when you're sorrowful over sin, and because you surround yourselves when you're sorrowful. With other wise voices, is what our passage says. So the wise person takes death seriously. They don't just try to go past it easily, but they actually take time to mourn. Mourning is a good thing, there is a time for mourning, it's a healing process. So the last main point of this sermon is verses 7 through 14. And it is that the wise person trusts the wisdom of God in the face of death. Now we talked about being sorrowful when someone passes on, and being at a funeral and being sorrowful, but there's a way that this can be done incorrectly. That this sorrow will actually learn to anger, or move to anger. And someone who is sorrowful after the passing of somebody will become angry, but they'll have nobody to come angry at. And I'm not talking about cases where there was a murder or something like that, where someone actually takes another life. Those are good cases to be angry because that person committed an injustice. But when death occurs, there are many people who will simply become angry at death. But death is not a person, so they in turn become angry at God for not intervening, for not doing what he could have done. And some people think this anger is correct. In the 20th century, a British poet wrote a poem, I don't know if you know it, it's called, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And the first uh, verse of that poem is, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old man should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He was an atheist, and the good night that he's talking about there is passing on, it's death. And he says that when you die, you should be angry. You should be furious. And I don't believe that is correct, based on our passage here today. And so, what is the other option? You can become angry at God through this death, through seeing this tragedy in life. Or you can submit to God's wisdom and hope to understand death. Now there's two reasons why we need to submit to God's wisdom. The first is that through submitting to God's wisdom, we protect our own wisdom. If you look at verse seven, it says, "Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart." This oppression that he's speaking of is the oppression that death has on our lives. The wise person, the person who um, accumulates knowledge, must be able to reconcile themselves with this death with This oppression. There's many people, many scholars or professors in um, universities that still have not reconciled with the truth that they will die one day. They spent all their lives learning, and they would be considered wise in our society. But this truth that they will die would drive them into madness. It would help them or cause them to lose all of their wisdom. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now this foolishness, this madness, comes from that pride in spirit. The fool gets angry at death, and therefore at God, because they believe that they deserved better. That's what this pride is. When you become angry at God, you believe that you deserve better than what God has given you. And so, you see in verse... um, this posture of anger and accusation. Why were the former days better than these? God, you treated me well in the past, but now things are worse off. Why is this? But we have to be careful with this anger. Now, there are times where you can become angry, but if you are always angry at God, if you are quick to become angry, like it says in our passage, then anger will lodge itself in your heart. You read the Psalms, and you might say, well, David got angry at God sometimes there, but he also would submit to God's wisdom by the end of that Psalm. He would be frustrated, but he would recognize that ultimately God was in control. But this anger that we're talking about is not an anger that will leave with understanding that God is in control. It's an anger that lodges itself in the heart. The funny thing about this word lodge is that I've never heard it used for describing something that's supposed to be where it is. Does that make sense? I've never heard you say that a um, power cord was lodged into an outlet, for example. Or that a bottle cap was lodged onto the bottle. No, it's always used for describing things that are where they're not supposed to be. For instance, a kid's head could get lodged where it's not supposed to be. Something could get lodged in someone's throat... So when it says that anger is lodged in the heart, it is stuck where it's not supposed to be and where it's not easily going to be removed from. It wants to stay there. And so when we allow this anger to get lodged into our hearts, we cannot easily get it out. And that's where bitterness comes from. You might have met people in the past who are constantly anger, constantly bitter. And that's because this anger has lodged itself in their heart, ultimately anger at God. And because of this, they are driven into madness. Their wisdom is taken away. They say, why were the former days better than these? Now, I'm sure many of us have asked this question. I've asked this question before, even at my young age. And many who are here are much older than I am. I'm sure they've asked this question before. Why were the former days better than these? But the answer to this question is it is not from, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is not a wise question to ask. And again, it comes back to that pride in spirit. When you ask why were the former days better than these, it is a subtle and implied accusation that you deserve better than what you have. That the days that were before were what you deserved, and now these days are not what you deserve. And so, the person who has not submitted to God's wisdom and trusted in God's wisdom will lose their own wisdom. It will be taken from them by their own anger, by their own pride. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12, or 11 through 12, to give reasoning why it's good to keep wisdom. It says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage for those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of wisdom is that it preserves the life of him who has it says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. This with means that it provides an inheritance. Wisdom is good because it provides an inheritance. And that's what it says again in verse 12. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. It offers protection having wisdom. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now again, we know that the wise person is going to die. We already learned that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. That's the vanity of wisdom. That it can't keep you alive perpetually. That even the most wise and good person will eventually pass on. But we do see here that wisdom is good with an inheritance. It gives us an inheritance. But what is this inheritance? Well, first, we need to know what it means to trust in the wisdom of God. To trust in the wisdom of God is to trust God, which is to have faith. It is to have faith. That is the wisdom that Solomon wishes for us to have in this passage, that even though we see death, which seems foreign, which makes us sorrowful, and rightly so, we have faith in God, and that provides our inheritance. But why should we have faith in this God? Why should we trust in this God? This leads us to the second reason why we should trust God's wisdom, and that's because God's wisdom is worth trusting. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 is a very memorable passage. For some, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we see in verse 13 that God is sovereign, that he has done something, and no one can act outside of that. It's a rhetorical question. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? The answer, we would think, is no one. But there is a correct answer to that question. That we know, being here, Solomon had to look forward to it. There is one who can make straight what he has made crooked, and it was God himself. When Christ came in the form of a man and lived a perfect life, and died in our place, and rose again, he ensured and guaranteed that what is now crooked will one day forever be made straight, that what is currently wrong with this world will be changed. It will be undone completely. So you ask the question, who can make straight what God has made crooked? The answer is Christ. Death is in the world, but through his death, he conquered death. Through his life, he offers forgiveness to anyone who repents and believes. This is what Christ did for us. But it also says in verse 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, many of you might think that the purpose of wisdom is kind of to help you control your life. Um, The wise person is the one who has a lot of self-control. They control their finances, what they eat, and therefore they prolong their life. No, the purpose of wisdom is to trust God. God created this world so that we may not find out what will be after us. No matter if we are perfectly obedient or always disobedient, we have no guarantee what's coming tomorrow. My good acts today will not make sure that tomorrow will be good. So what is good about this? Why is this a good thing that God has done? It forces us to have faith in God and live dependent upon God. Christ was the one who came and died so that we who have been foolish may be wise. So I ask you today, if you are here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ, would you repent and believe this gospel, that we have been foolish, each of us, we have all sinned against God, we have, none of us lived our lives perfectly, seizing every single moment that he has given us, but the first step towards wisdom is faith in Christ. That is what it means to submit in, or submit and trust in God's wisdom, instead of trusting in our own. We see the things of this world and can't always make sense of them, but we trust that God is controlling it. We trust that God will one day make all things new, that Christ who is in heaven now will one day return for us and for our salvation, for our redemption. So I ask that you would believe. That is the first application that you can make today. I'm not going to offer ways that you can live wisely if you will not believe first in Jesus Christ because then your wisdom will do you no good. Then you will not have that benefit for it will be worldly wisdom. But see today that you will die and turn to Christ who will forgive you. By way of application of this passage I have three. The first one is that we would work to remember that we will die. Perhaps the first step for you is to buy the book that Um, Pastor Eric recommended um, the book of the month this time remember death I didn't even know that was going to be um, the book of the month this month but um, it's a good tool remember death and then off of that let it impact how you live remember that you will die and let it change the way you live each day whether that means the reminder on your alarm clock in the morning is that you are going to die make the day count The second thing is that you would allow yourself and others time to mourn over loss. That you would see death and be sorrowful about it. That you would not be the Christian who is always happy, but the one who is content to sit and mourn. And that you would tell others that it's okay to do so. That you would not scold someone for mourning the loss of a loved one, but that you would be there... To offer wisdom to them. And the third thing is that when you remember death, remember the death of Christ. Remember the one who lived and died for your sake, and therefore live for him. This whole passage is really about faith, teaching us to have faith in God even though death is in this life, death that we cannot always explain. But it's there. So we must believe that God is still good. I will close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this day. I ask that you would stir the hearts and minds of those who are here to remember that they will die. I pray for anyone here who is not currently a believer, that you would draw them to yourself, Lord, that you would move them to talk to Pastor Eric, talk to Clayton about the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, that they would make their lives count today. Um, I thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.